There's no denying it, holiday shopping season has arrived. Which brings us to David Yurman, America's foremost luxury jewelry brand. Its new campaign, Create Joy, Give David Yurman, celebrates life's small wonders and the magic of the holiday season. To create it, David Yurman partnered with the Savannah College of Art and Design's SCAD Pro Studio program to create the brand's first extended reality project. Together, they merged the real and virtual worlds to create an immersive environment that pays homage to David Yurman's home and perennial inspiration, New York City. Experience the holiday magic at davidyurman.com. Happy Saturday. It's November 25th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. Happy Thanksgiving, Michael. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy long weekend here in the U.S. for everyone who's just, I hope you're in a turkey stupor and lots of leftovers. We got a perfect weekend show for you. How did you celebrate the holiday? Here in New York City. How about you in London? Did you have a little Thanksgiving for your British friends? You know what, Michael? I did. It was kind of great. Cooked all the Thanksgiving classics. I think it used to be hard to get cranberry sauce and turkey here, but no. In fact, these supermarkets know their audience. We got a fabulous turkey from Lydgates in Notting Hill. Thank you, Lydgates. And it was all in all a fabulous evening of festivities. And best of all, on Thanksgiving night is when Claridge's unveils their Christmas tree. So I got to top off the evening with some champagne at my favorite hotel in London. Not bad. Wonderful. Well, we've got a great show this week. It's a sort of stuffed with good things. Jensen Davis is here to discuss her incredible story about a shocking evangelical-based parenting program that has been operating for 40 years and teaches parents that babies are morally corrupt and must be broken of their waywardness. You'll want to hear all about that. Then, speaking of incredible things, the screenwriter Scott C. Burns will join us to tell us what AI gets wrong. And then, John Mauchery has the story of the unforgettable night that Jacqueline Kennedy went to the opera and watched the world's greatest diva. Ashley, where would you like to begin today? What better place to begin this holiday weekend than with the story of families behaving badly? Johnson Davis is here with the shocking story of Gary and Anne-Marie Ezzo. For 40 years, this evangelical Christian couple have preached a shocking parenting program. It's rooted in the beliefs that babies are just little balls of sin and their evilness must be broken and we can make them obedient if only we have the tools. It turns out that the world of parenting experts is full of charlatans, just like the rest of the world. Jensen is here to expose one of the most insidious of them all. She is a senior editor for Aramail and one of our favorite guests. Welcome, Jensen Davis. Hi, Jensen. Hello. So Jensen, your story in the issue this week is about an incredibly disturbing cult of childcare expertise and evangelical Christianity. But before we get into the details, what I loved so much about this story is that it gave me a new understanding of some people I think that are in my life who might have used this method and whose kids are always eerily well behaved. Like you've seen kids like this, right? Who never talk back, always do what they're told, never have an outburst. Um, And it turns out that that might come at a cost. Yeah. So, I mean, this didn't make it into the story, but I talked to a lot of attachment theory researchers and experts and a lot of child psychologists. But for a lot of kids who are sort of conditioned to behave like dogs or like perform or just seem like they have no feelings and just automatically respond, that doesn't mean that they're not experiencing turmoil or whatever inside. And it does down the line come back to haunt them. There are definitely repercussions. How did you first hear of this particular child care cult and who is Mark Azos? So I am neither a Christian nor a mom. 
So this is definitely not my wheelhouse, but a woman who is in her 30s got in touch. She grew up an Ezo baby. And she grew up actually not too far from me in Los Angeles, but very different circumstances. And she was raised in a very strict evangelical household and did not really understand that her childhood was different than anybody else's. Because when you're a child, you think every family is like your own and every parent is like your own. But as she went to college and grew up and sort of was dealing with the fallout of such a strict upbringing, she got in touch and explained all of the ways that she felt this parenting method had messed her up. And through there, I took one of the Ezo's parenting classes, which they don't only teach. They volunteers teach the courses. I take you through the books. But that's how I got to it because I, yeah, very unfamiliar with this world until the past few months. And what are some of the key tenets of this approach to child rearing? Well, the number one rule I would say is obedience. It's teaching your child how to just without any questioning respond immediately because the philosophy behind it is children are not born naturally obeying God. It believes in original sin that children are born with a predisposition to sin. It's a very, very literal interpretation of the Bible. It's based off of the belief that the story of Adam and Eve and their fall from the Garden of Eden is true. So it is basically that a child learns godliness and how to obey first by obeying their parents. So children are supposed to have a relationship with their parents that is similar to their parents' relationship to God. Is it directly affiliated with some sort of a church or is this more of an informal relationship? So in the 90s, the organization Growing Families International did have not partnerships, but sort of relationships with churches to bring the classes to them. But now Gary Ezzo has had quite a checkered history. He's been excommunicated from at least three churches and discredited by like the Oprah Winfrey of the evangelical movement, a man named John MacArthur, who runs a mega church in California. So it's more of a informal, not directly affiliated with specific churches, but it does appeal to fundamentalist and evangelical Christians. Do we have a sense of how many families have adopted this approach and, and how its popularity has because this to me seems like such an incredibly outdated way of raising kids like all of the sort of conventional wisdom these days is about letting children express their feelings and seeing them as who they are and and this kind of radical self-acceptance like why is this still a thing so in its heyday before all of the excommunications and the embezzlement scandal and whatnot it was in 12,000 churches and the most popular book preparation for parenting sold like a million copies within the first few years but now is not as popular as it once was by any means. But one of the women I talked to who has been an evangelical for decades says that the wisdom from the book or like the lessons is sort of like in the air now. So people regurgitate as a principles without realizing where it necessarily comes from. So the influence is to the point where it's like kind of like saturated. But they have a secular version of the book called On Becoming Babywise, which is the same exact book, just all of the scripture is taken out and the references to God are just deleted, which makes for some kind of uneven reading because you're like, something's missing. And then you read the original and you're like, oh, it's this Bible verse that's missing. But that book is still incredibly popular. It's a bestseller on Amazon. It's available at like every New York City bookstore that's in walking distance from my apartment. And in 2016, it was on the New York Times bestseller list. 
in the top 10. So that book, a lot of people don't realize based off of this preparation for parenting book, that, that literal interpretation of the Bible, that is still extremely popular and is still widely read. I remember when my kids were born, there was a heated conversation around this book amongst like the new moms I knew at that time. And I kind of get it because it is tempting this idea that you can make your child well-behaved and do what you want and sleep when they want and eat when you want. And like this notion that you can have control, like supreme control over this tiny little being is kind of tempting in a world of chaos. And yet now we know how destructive that is. Why, Jensen, I guess, why has no one blown the lid on this yet? Like in your research and in your reporting, what happens to kids who have been subjected to like the extreme version of this method for their whole lives? Well, I mean, there's not been like a huge long-term study about all of the kids raised this way, but there are a lot of studies about infant attachment issues. Some, again, this didn't make it into the final article, but a lot of like a person's like attachment style, their parents and sort of like which shapes their attachment to people going forward is in like the first year or two of their life. So it's like there are different ways it can manifest. But basically either you can become it's like either you really don't show anything and you're really shut down. But like you feel the consequences of like the unstable relationships like a caregiver, but you don't like vocalize it and you sort of really internalize it or you overly externalize it and are super anxious and become super attached to pseudo caregivers and stuff like that. So, I mean, with some of the people I've talked to, like one of the girls was explaining, like she just has an extremely deep sense that if she does not obey, like the world is going to end, like something horrible will happen. So it'll be something as simple as all of her friends were jumping the turnstile at a subway station. And like she physically was not able to get over the turnstile because she was like, someone is watching and something bad will happen if I break a rule. So it's sort of like that deep-seated sense of fear. And then also a lot of consequences in relationships and unable to, as an adult, feel like you can form a stable relationship or feel safe. Okay, Jensen, even though you are not a mother and not an evangelical Christian, you now know a thing or two about parenting. So after doing this reporting and doing this great story, what is your takeaway for parents who might be curious about this particular approach? Well, I guess my main takeaway is to not follow it. I think that's just generally probably a good piece of advice. But I guess my main takeaway is that I feel like I'm pretty far away from having kids. And so it's like I read the book. I read the secular version of the book before I had researched about a lot of the scandals and debunking the methods. And when I read it, I was like, I don't know anything about babies. This seems fine enough. I would love my baby to sleep through the night. I need nine hours. And I guess it made me realize that having a child seems like pretty scary and you're kind of inclined to believe anything that sounds good. So I guess when I read parenting books, if you've had a kid, like you have some sort of legitimacy and you sound like you're an expert, but people can just make stuff up and slap a quote next to it. And it sounds legit, but it might not be. It might be very not legit. Cheeseball parenting experts, Jensen, a metaphor for life. Thank you so much for this great story. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Jensen. Take care. See you soon. Michael, I feel so much better about my personal parenting choices now. Turns out by letting my kids act like complete maniacs, I was really doing the right thing for humanity. Who knew? Yeah. I mean, 
who knew you didn't have a create a small garden of Eden in your backyard and tempt your children to pick the apple, but it's a different story. But I mean, my son is 10 and he still largely eats with his hands, but hey, no problem. Maybe he thinks he's Henry VIII. I don't know. Yeah. Look, I'm just letting him be him, Michael. Okay. Anyway. This evangelical parenting program, I mean, it's going to be threatened by AI because in the future, which is now, people just be asking AI, how should I raise my child? And probably sets up why Scott Z. Burns is here today. Welcome, Scott Z. Burns. So, Scott, you're somewhat prescient when it comes to matters of world affairs, especially disastrous ones. You wrote the screenplay for Contagion and forecast that, in fact, many years before the pandemic actually hit. Now you're thinking deeply about AI, and it's been a conversation we've been talking a lot about, especially in the light of the strikes in Hollywood. Tell us a little bit about your thinking on that, especially as it pertains to your work and what you talk about in your story this week. I think that AI is a tool. And that's a tricky thing to say because someone might have said some time ago that splitting an atom is a tool. And so for me, when I first started thinking about this, I considered how can I use this as a resource to help me? And it didn't seem weird to me like that we already use Google and I've done so many projects where research was a big part of my life, whether it was extrapolations and climate change or the report and the CIA's program. So research to me was my friend. And if this was going to help me do research, then I have no problem with that. But then when it started to become something that people were talking about, well, can this replace the creative process? That made me sit up and take note. And also, as you said, Contagion was a very research-based project, and I spent a lot of time talking to scientists about pandemics and where they come from. And so my first question was, well, could you use this to predict where the next one was coming? Because there will be another one. So it was a twofold thing. On one hand, what does this do to creativity? And on the other hand, is this a resource for people who want to think about public health because public health is always going to be a story. Yeah, especially now. Scott, as the conversations were unfolding around the role of AI in Hollywood, what do you think people were missing? What were we getting wrong? I think that it's very easy for people who are uncomfortable with technology, and by the way, that should on some level be all of us, to get confused about whether something exists to make a job easier or to replace people. And look, technology has always had that problem. I mean, when you walk down a country road and you see a tractor, most of us don't think about all the people who lost their jobs to the tractor. But especially with work that comes from a template, whether it's lease law or reading MRIs or things like that, those are applications of AI that may in fact make sense. And that is always going to be a problem technology does sometimes exist to make our lives easier. And that starts to look like it's taking away our functions. I think what's more concerning to me, and Professor Scott Galloway has talked about this quite a bit recently, is as AIs become more niche, whatever they're going to be fed becomes very suspect to me. You can look at data about films and decide that, oh, the best things are sequels and comic books. Well, that is a bit of a problem for me. I'd like our storytelling to be a lot more diverse than that. And it basically is saying that we can't 
if we stop making up stories, then we have a real problem. And that's what scares me is as it becomes more niche, what is going to happen to creative conversations and what happens to unique voices? I think that's what resonates for me in your story as you describe it. It's the death of expertise, right? Which is where AI is that and we don't know its sources for its findings. So it sort of becomes this thing that is seems like it's a promise, but it's also with all these potential problems. Well, and there is sort of a weird Freudian, Proustian part of this, which is that these AIs don't have childhoods. They don't have a past. And so Steven Soderbergh told me a story early on that really made a difference in the way that I thought about it, which is if you're standing in front of an actor and you say to them, hey, I want you to think about that time you were pitching in a Little League game and the wind was blowing and you could feel it and you had to go to the bathroom and you embarrassed yourself because you peed in your pants on the pitcher's mound in front of everybody. Well, to an actor, that may mean something. To an AI, that means nothing. And so there is the aspect of human experience and the interplay. So especially when you get into directing an actor and the intricacies of human behavior, I think there's a lot of complexity that we need to take into account. Or if you're a really great writer and just writing a novel, I don't know how someone arrives at the Great Gatsby or how an AI would arrive at the Great Gatsby without the human experiences that Fitzgerald had. And I think that can be said of so many amazing voices. So yeah, that's my biggest concern. Scott, thank you so much for this great story and your provocative thinking. And I, for one, cannot wait to see your AI movie, which I'm sure you're working on right now. <laughs> Have a good day. Thanks, Scott. David Yerman's new holiday campaign, Create Joy, Give David Yerman, celebrates life's small wonders. And when it comes to giving joy, we have a few ideas. David Yerman's collections have something for everyone, whether it's sculpted cable, petite pavé, and starburst designs for her, or pavé beads, tags, and chains, and chevron for him. There's an irresistible mix of delights for everyone on your shopping list. For inspiration, visit davidyearman.com to browse the collections and take in the new campaign, inspired by the enchantment of the holiday season. David Yearman's designs are made to celebrate moments of connection, joyful memories, and unexpected magic. Happy holidays and happy shopping. Okay, Michael, so on average, right now, middle of the episode, I'm feeling better about the world. Can we continue in this direction, please? Yeah, you know what's going to make you feel better? Anything with Jackie Kennedy. And we've got a fantastic story about the night she went to the opera and watched the world's greatest diva, Maria Callas, and the woman who's at that point a lover of the man she'd eventually marry, Aristotle Onassis. But John Mauchery is here to tell us all about it. John Mauchery is the author of The War on Music, Reclaiming the 20th Century, and he was the musical advisor to the Todd Field film Tar, which came out last year starring Kate Blanchett. So please welcome John. Hi. So one of the truths of American culture that I failed to understand until I read your story was the level of fame that Maria Callas enjoyed in the 1950s. Tell us exactly how well known she was. Well, in the 1950s, I was born in 45. So I'm talking about growing up and seeing her picture in Life magazine. I grew up 
She's on television being interviewed on a show person to person. Like they did that with presidents. So that's how famous she was. She was a media. I don't want to find a bad word for the noun after media, but she pursued it. She lived her life in the media, which was pretty unusual for opera singers, though there have been those in the past who just had that. When you have Chicken Tetrazzini in a restaurant, that's named for an opera singer. Caruso was that famous. But we're talking now the 1950s, the Cold War, this diva from New York City who lost her New York accent and became this extraordinary international figure. And because of the way she performed, the drama that she brought to her performances, she became on stage and off stage, a hugely attractive and dramatic personality. So then let's go to talking about New York and dramatic and attractive personalities. The night sort of certain stars aligned in March 19th, 1965. What happened then? What made that so important is that she had a famous feud with the managing director of the Metropolitan Opera, and he refused to hire her. She refused to sing there. And so for seven years, seven years in the life of an opera singer, that is a chunk because opera singers immolate themselves in front of you. I mean, very few opera singers have a time where they're absolutely at their peak for longer than a decade. So losing seven years of Maria Callas was huge in New York, and she was singing all over the world. So when it was announced the year before that she was going to come back to sing Tosca, which was one of her most famous roles. This caused an unbelievable explosion within the world, not only of opera singers and opera goers, but also the public, because she was somebody you saw on television. So there was this frenzy to get tickets for what turned out to be her last two performances ever at the Met. And I managed to get a ticket for the first of them. And so that night, when you sat at the old Met, this is the theater where Toscanini conducted and Puccini was there. And all the whole history of the Met was embodied in that old theater, that magnificent theater on 39th Street Broadway. The excitement was palpable. I mean, I don't expect I'll ever experience anything like that again. There was a sense of occasion on all of us in that theater knew we were the chosen ones. Who knew what was going to happen? First of all, she was as famous for canceling as she was for singing. So was there going to be a moment where the gold curtain parted and Ozzy Hawkins would come out and say, ladies and gentlemen, I regret to inform you. That was always in the air. So when that didn't happen, and the opera started, we knew we were in for some. Now, part of the deal with the role of Tosca is that her entrance doesn't happen at the beginning of the opera. It happens 12 minutes into the opera. We have an opening scene. We have drama. We have the tenor singing in aria. And that tenor was Franco Corelli, who at that time was the most famous tenor in the world. Handsome, huge voice, beautiful man, great singer. And he finishes his aria. There's a little bit of stuff. And then Tosca's first entrance is off stage. She's calling her lover's name, Mario. And we hear Mario first time in the orchestra. And the audience starts to realize it's actually going to happen. This is going to happen. <laughs> as she sings Mario, 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 it was, as I say in this piece, like somebody down in the pit put his finger in the socket and we all went, I mean, there was literally that electricity that went through something like 3,000, whatever number of people were in that attendance. And when she came out, there she was. And she had a new costume and she had a bouquet of, seemed like two dozen yellow roses. I mean, it was just the most magnificent thing. And we went crazy. And as I say in the piece, if you link the recording, because somebody had a cassette recording device up there or somewhere, you hear people just going crazy. It's like a football moment. It's like a moment of a pop star. It's beyond anything. Taylor Swift, that's what happens. 
And when you hear that little clip, you might get an inkling about how powerful and important an artist she was. So I wanted to say, John, so what you just mentioned is Taylor Swift, but and the level of notoriety in that room that night, you had Marie on stage, you had Mrs. Kennedy recently sort of resurfacing in public after her husband had died. Tell us about what's happening, not just you in the audience, but Mrs. Kennedy's watching with a woman who was basically the lover of her future husband, right? Aristotle Onassis. Very complicated, very operatic. Well, after Act One, now mind you, this is not yesterday. So during the interval, there Tosca is a three-act opera. So there are two intervals, two intermissions. And during one of them, and I was sitting in the balcony of the old Metropolitan Opera House, I walked down to the edge and I looked down at the audience, who was in the audience. And I saw in one of the boxes, Mrs. Kennedy. It was an astounding moment because I didn't know who else was in the house. But look, this is 1965, so I'm 19 years old. <laughs> I don't know who all these people are. I am a student at Yale. I've driven down from New Haven. And there's Mrs. Kennedy. And she's wearing a powder blue Alpire gown with white opera gloves. I mean, looking unbelievably radiant, so radiant. And it was only later that I realized what was actually happening, because how did I know Mrs. Kennedy, who had disappeared from public for a year after her husband was assassinated, was appearing at the Met. Now, this was, all right, that was interesting. But then, of course, I put all this together subsequently. Now, you have Maria Callas on the stage, and she's wearing an Empire dress herself, the same style from Napoleonic era, right? But hers, but Maria's is dark red velvet. And so she's this passionate character, this character, she's playing this character who is, in fact, Aristotle Onassis's lover at that time. She had left her husband and she was now with this rich Greek shipping magnet. Now, Maria Callas was herself of Greek ancestry. And there was this queen, this elegant, beautiful woman wearing a gown that could have been designed the same time, but in pale blue. And only later did I put that together that there was another opera going on. It was an unspoken, unsung opera where Mrs. Kennedy is staring at Maria Callas, but would ultimately marry her lover when Aristotle Onassis throws Callas off from his life and marries Mrs. Kennedy to become Kennedy Onassis. This is an extraordinary moment. And I realized when I wrote this piece that I was one of the very few people alive who even saw this and could put that together. So I thought it was valuable to point that out as a little historical other opera going on that night in 1965. I mean, that's incredible. And that backdrop against it, and it's cinematic, cinematic. Well, insofar as cinema is the opera of the 20th and 21st century, it's absolutely on the level that someone could write an opera about that opera <laughs> that night. I mean, what was going through Mrs. Kennedy's mind? I don't know. How can we imagine that? We can only imagine that. And that was what was playing off stage after that, in the months after that. And a lot of people think that that led to Callis's depression and leaving the stage. It may or may not be true. We're just projecting what backstage, what personal lives are like. But that was definitely a moment, and I'll never forget it. As I say in the piece, Mrs. Kennedy was so radiant. I'm looking down from above, so I see her face, her hair. I see the upper part of her chest, and it's the color, a radiance that just hit me. And I've never experienced that before in my life. I mean, I was a teenage young man. But then later, years later, I mean, I got to meet Princess Diana. I was conducting Toronto at La Scala, and Charles and Diana came. It was the first time in history that the official Windsor family, the royal family, came to the opera in Milan, their greatest opera house. And I was conducting that night, and after Act One of Toronto, we 
we were brought, my wife and I were brought to meet the Prince and Princess of Wales. And when I shook their hands, Diana had that same radiant. And it, it made me link back to when I was 19 years old to that other person, that other woman I saw with that radiance. And I've never forgotten that. That was a big kind of moment of connectivity in my life. As you mentioned also, like cinematic, so much going on. We got the Leonard Bernstein biopic coming out. So that relationship between Leonard Bernstein and Maria Callas is part of that history. The fact that Lenny is the subject of a movie that's now just being released called Maestro. And this is the centenary of Maria Callas's birth, which is causing at the same time, December, a lot of Callas news. But at the same time, there's another movie about a, a larger than life classical music artist, Maria Callas, that's having been filmed, will be released next year, in which Angelina Jolie plays Callas, just as Bradley Cooper played Leonard Bernstein this year. So it's a really interesting moment, right? Because these operatic stories, these larger than life stories become the subject of films, which makes sense of course. Wonderful, John. You bring it alive in our minds and it makes us feel like we're right there. So I feel very fortunate to have you have shared it with us. Well, my pleasure. Thank you, John. Real pleasure. Thank you. Well, Michael, another great episode of Airmail. Lots to read this holiday weekend. But just in case you have some spare time, is there anything at all you can recommend to us? I do. Everyone's excited because The Crown is back and that's great. But another terrific UK-based show is back and it's not as glamorous, but it is loaded with grittiness and great performances, beginning with Gary Oldman. It is Slow Horses on Apple TV, and it's returned for season three. If you haven't seen the first two, catch up now. For those of you who do know, this is where Oldman plays Jackson Lamb, who is a master of a group of screw-up MI5 agents. I love this show. The performances all are great. It's based on the books by Mick Herron. It's Slow Horses on Apple TV. And it's a great series to tuck into as the nights are dark and cold. And you, my dear? Have you seen Foil's War? No. Wait, seriously? Seriously. I can't watch everything. Oh I know gosh. you think I'm a superhuman, but I'm not. Well, David and I watched this. My husband and I watched this years ago. It's a British detective trauma, of course, and it's set during and after the Second World War, of course. It was created by Anthony Horowitz and it ran on ITV in the UK, but we watched it. I don't know if, what it was on at the time, but I was talking to Anna Carter and she was telling me that she's watching it now. And I was reminded that I need to watch it again because it is just such an incredible show. There are eight seasons of it. It stars... Michael Kitchen, who is a chief superintendent and a detective of police, and he's trying to figure out where all this criminal behavior is coming in the middle and after of the war. And it has really everything. The first six seasons are set in Sussex. And after retirement, for the last few seasons, he returns to MI5. And then the last few seasons are set back in London when he's working with MI5. It's an incredible show. If you're looking for something new to delve into, it has everything. War, espionage, romance, family drama. There's nothing you're not going to love. It's also incredibly detailed. So his History lovers will adore it. Anyway, it's called Foil's War. It was created by Anthony Horowitz, starring Michael Kitchen. You can watch it on Apple TV or Amazon Prime Video with a subscription. So if you want to just delve into something and resurface in February, this is your show. Sounds like something perfect for a long holiday weekend. I'm going to get started right now. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you to our sponsor, David Yerman. Michael, will you please read us out? Absolutely. Pass the pumpkin pie.
Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music, but most of all, thank you again for joining us.